Bring me shelter, I will not harm you. Bring me shelter, please. Bring me shelter, I will not harm you. I would shelter you. People would do anything for their families. It could happen to anyone anytime. Somebody in France, somebody in England basically sat down with a ruler and just drew lines on maps. There are many different ethnic and religious groups that have been divided across borders and this has caused a significant amount of conflict. There are a lot of people who need safety. It is really cruel for a country like Australia to have policies that are focused only on pushing people away. What we're seeing is a number of people that remain in a state of limbo. And when non-sustainable land use combines with climate change, the crisis of refugees... I wasn't able to go and play with children. I had to go and really be an adult from a very young age. I think that's something that a lot of migrant children can relate to. Really, it was a dream for me to reunite with my family. I was just praying and hoping that that day will come one day. I think it's very important for people to understand that people have their own dreams as well and they're wanting to change the world with everybody else. Refugee Radio, 855 AM, 3CR. We want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land who we are broadcasting from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and respect the elders past, present and emerging and their ongoing struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Welcome to Refugee Radio this week on 3CR 855 AM. We're going to be listening to episode 4 of the Wait podcast which is about refugees stuck in Indonesia due to the Australian government's policies. We're going to be listening to part one now. The Wait was recorded in Indonesia and produced on the lands of the Darawal, Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples, whose sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This episode contains references to suicide. Listen with care. Uh, I want to explain to you about the, how I change, how I change to Batman to Goodman, yeah? But I don't know this is good or not if I explain to you. No need. No need? Just tell me where you got the outfit. You're wearing the most incredible outfit. You've got blue flares and a silver and black shirt and you look amazing and like you've just walked out of the 70s. Where did you get this? Um I really wanted you to meet Mehdi because out of everybody that I know here, he's been here the longest. How long has he been in Indonesia? For over nine years now. Okay, so Mehdi doesn't like to buy clothes or shoes and he, he uses donated stuff from church. That's, that's how he found this outfit, this lovely outfit. It's gifted to him. He has this cute character and he always makes people laugh even when he's in really difficult times. You are tall and I'm shorter. You are tall, I am small, I shame because taller than me. Come on, stop it. Better you working like that. 
There's this pastor that is helping Mehdi, so he gave him a room behind of a church, at the back of a church where he lives. I'm Ojgan Muarafizadeh. I'm Nicole Kirby. This is The Wait, a podcast series that uncovers how Australia is pushing its borders out and brings you into the lives of refugees like me who are caught on the borderline in Indonesia. Every night that I'm sleepless, I'm just looking at the ceilings, it goes back into a circle of thinking, how did I get here? How do I get out of here? It never feels like I'm at home and how am I supposed to get out of this? How do I survive? This episode, Faith and Survival. This is his sanctuary. Many days come here and just bow down and cry so hard, especially at nights, and just pray for a way, for a hope. This is very garden. Uh, 24 hours is active. 24 hours every day. Worship of God. There's always someone here singing and playing music. Because activity, I mean, in Every night, you ask me uh, what is my activity. My activity is there. Uh, every night, 2 a.m. until 4 or 5 a.m., I, uh, I come here and worship. Yeah. Interpret? <laughs> Interpret. <laughs> I will help you. Interpret. Interpret. I have this fear of getting arrested at all times. And even my pastor that is helping me stay here asked me not to go out of the house as much as possible so that I'm not known by the neighbors around. We can often get reported by our neighbors that there's foreigners living here. So uh, from this room that we are now in until the church is about 200 meters. And I can only go there and come back. If it gets really necessary, then I might go to the little grocery store to do my shopping and come back. I totally live like a prisoner. What can a prisoner do? So what I do is I read books, I read the Bible a lot, and I pray a lot, and I do some simple exercises. How did Mehdi end up under this kind of house arrest? Mehdi's refugee claim and appeals were rejected back in 2013. So he doesn't have a refugee status here, and that means he has no right to even stay here. All the other refugees and asylum seekers are hoping for resettlement. For Mehdi, it's a bit different because he doesn't have a status. It means he doesn't have any hope for resettlement. It's just not on the cards for him at all. After a while that it got really difficult, Mehdi's daughter and wife left him and went back home. But for Mehdi himself, he really can't return because he believes that if he goes back, he will definitely be killed. Does that mean Mehdi's stuck in Indonesia forever? Yes. The thing is with resettlement, we are all being told that it's really unlikely for all of us to get resettled. Uh, So whether our claims are rejected or not, 
we're all looking at a very, very long future here in Indonesia. We're all finding ourselves in a similar situation like Mehdi's. And for him, the way of survival, faith is the only light at the end of the tunnel. Oh. <laughs> Mehdi led us into the church garden he spends most of his time at. For prey, a very big, uh, small room for prey. How do you describe that? Like it's a, like a stairs shape or anything? So there's a hill with these cells, you'd almost call them tiny cells, cut into the side of the hill. And you, you, you sit there for hours, Mehdi, days. Maximum two days or maybe one day. I remember when your wife just left, you were telling me that for two days you spent your time in one yeah. of those prayer rooms and yeah, did not yeah. go out at all. You were yeah. thinking about suicide and all that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Please not yet. Yeah, and then you receive More peace yeah. while praying. And uh, I cannot sleep and couldn't sleep every night. A lot of times I keep having feelings of revenge from others. Because I feel like I'm stuck in a cage and nobody is hearing me. I understand the four... Uh, uh, so I here, uh, although it's really difficult for me to forgive, I can get the feelings of forgiveness. And and I, feel like I love everybody, even the, my enemies. Even towards my wife's, my ex-wife's boyfriend, I don't have any hatred when I'm here. You're battling your demons here. Yeah. Like a box ring. It's like boxing for him. Yeah, sometimes Shaitan uh, hit me and broken my three times broken the <laughs> Sometimes Satan hits you and breaks your nose, you're saying. Sometimes Satan hits you But I keep battling this, the demons here. I'm already beaten by a ton of mosquitoes right now. How do you come here and be spiritual? I don't understand. Reaching for your heart, you hold my life in your hand. شنونده ای که صدای منو میشنوه شاید برای شالب باشه شاید هم مسخره باشه ولی با توجه به ایمانی که دارم چهار سال It might be really funny for the listeners to hear me talking about my faith too much but this is all I have I believe that one day I will get out of here I don't know how but it's just my faith that keeps me going and thinking that there will be a day that I will get out of here it's just not the time now I think we were both feeling a lot of things when we left Mehdi that day. I have known him for five years now. I don't see him that often, but we are in touch. Every time I see him and he talks about his dreams and how he spent his days and talks about these things, it feels for me like he's barely living in this world. He's just out of it because he lost some of the most valuable things in his life, like his daughter, his wife. He's living in his dreams. Yeah, he spent a lot of time talking about his dreams, right? Yeah. As if they were the most substantial part of his life. As if they were going to be real. Uh Uh-huh. 
the day after we met him, I got a message from Maddie saying that we'd met him on his birthday, but at the time he hadn't remembered. And he wrote to me, someday I'll forget my name. The fact is, I do nothing but wait. I'm just waiting for a miracle. It's really weird and difficult at the same time to see people around me just breaking apart like that. Because, you know, before they used to be really confident, they all had their own jobs, they had their own businesses, their way of living. But now they lost all of that. So each of them is trying to find their own scape. Like for Mehdi, it's his dreams and his spiritual scape that he's doing. For my father, who is the closest to me, is his art. It's just pencils everywhere, charcoal everywhere, black dust everywhere. He's just kind of sinking in all these papers and drawings and things around him. He's just amusing himself like that. I mean, that sounds kind of like a beautiful way of coping as well, right? Well, I don't know how to feel about it, really. When I see him like that and when I remember how he was before, it's, it's painful because he's, he's not even similar to the person he was before. I feel like I don't know this person anymore because he's not himself. In what way? How's that? Now that he finds himself in this situation, he kind of feels like we don't care for him. Of course, it's not like that, but just that's how he feels. And I've, I've been seeing a pattern in the refugee community, especially among men, that once they lose their job, they kind of lose their, their self-identity and they, they kind of lose themselves. Once all of these men were providing for their families, they were in control of everything, but now they lost that control. So it's, it's only normal that they kind of lose themselves too. So what's your source of strength in all of this? Sometimes I feel like I'm actually not holding it together at all. But then I look at people around me, especially my mom. Everybody in the community loves her. Everybody calls her auntie. Some people call her mom. This woman does not sit down. She's always constantly doing something. And when she has nothing to do, she's like, oh, I'm getting sick. I feel like I'm getting sick. I should be doing something. I'm like, mom, can you just chill for like two hours? She really does not take rests. She sacrificed absolutely everything for us. When I see how hard she's trying to be strong, how hard she's trying to be a good role model for us and to give us resilience, especially to me, I get up again and I try to do what she's doing trying to help others and get strength that way. We all have different ways of coping. It's actually nicer to do it outside. But you're right, they're starting the prayer. We can try inside. What do you want to hear? Um, it's, it's difficult, it's difficult, it's very difficult. What is the difficulty? Everything is difficult. I don't have a nationality, this is difficult. I don't have a future, this is difficult. I don't have the right to get married, this is difficult. I, even if I get married, in Indonesian law that's illegal because they're not going to give me Yes, it's not registered, they're not, they're, they're not going to give me a paper for that. If I decided to have a child, this child will not have a birth certificate. It's like he's not even existing in this world. Yeah. So 
I don't have anything. I lost my past. I don't have a present. And maybe I don't have a future. That's what you want to hear? Yes, that's it's bad. But what I'm supposed to do is if I decided to think of ease the of all this stuff every single day, I will shoot myself right now. I have to learn how to survive. And I believe in Jesus and I believe Jesus will never ever leave me. We have a disagree about beliefs, <laughs> but for me, he's my rock. Elaine is a good match for you, Moshgan. You're both full of sass and you both accuse each other of being workaholics. I don't think we are a good match because we argue all the time. How can that be a good match? <laughs> Equal amounts of attitude. The first time I saw her, she was talking too much. And she was like, what is wrong I was with giving this? a report about my work. You know, that was too much talking. It wasn't a report. It was completely too much talking. And my mind was like, what is wrong with her? Uh, hi, call me Elena. I'm 37 years old. I still look young. I have a good genes. I'm originally from Sudan. And I'm actually a dentist. And I came here as a refugee. And one month after I came to Indonesia, I was a teacher assistant. And after one month, I became one of the managers. All of a sudden, we saw this girl in meetings as advocacy manager. Like, she's a newcomer. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> uh, yeah. She took over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Since Elena has been here in Indonesia, she really has devoted her life to the education of refugee kids here. She's been volunteering with the Learning Center right from the start, and she's setting up one now for refugee kids. I told her not to, by the way. <laughs> and I bet she didn't listen to you for a second. She doesn't. It's a really big challenge to start a Learning Center. This is the lower primary class. This is Miss Aryan class. That one we met, so... Oh, cute little class, tiny, tiny chairs. Yeah, it's tiny, yeah, the lower primary, they are really tiny chairs, from (laughs) six to nine. I will be honest, I'm worried about the children of refugees, all the teenage, because we can consider them as a lost generation. They are not allowed to go to school here. And if they go to school, they don't get a certificate. And either I will like it or not, without certificate, you're not going anywhere. And they're staying here for a long time, five, six, seven years. Some of them will never, ever get resettlement. And it's not just in Indonesia. It's refugees and asylum seekers all over the world. These are lost generations. What she's talking about is something that I see around me all the time, every day. As an example, I see my brother. He grown up here in Indonesia without any education. I'm really seeing him getting into trouble and, you know, not picking up skills, not learning anything, wasting his days away just because he can't get an education. I feel like I see you worrying about him all the time. In the last episode, I went to Makassar in Sulawesi without you and I visited shelters. I met all these kids there. They've been living in shelters for years and if they're lucky, they only get a couple of hours of class a week. When I saw them, they were desperate to talk. Yeah, I want to introduce myself. I'm Umid Ahmadi and I'm from Afghanistan and I want to talk about my life in Makassar. 
I am Marzia Sufi and I am 16 years old. When I was born, I was uh, born as a child of refugee. I grew up as a refugee and I don't think I have a country because I haven't seen Afghanistan with my eyes. I haven't even been there in one second. I just saw Afghanistan in uh, Google. I'm Sarah, I'm 12 years old. I was born in Iran as an immigrant and I was born as an immigrant, I, I just grew as an immigrant. I'm 11 years old and I'm here for six years. And Indonesian people, kids, they're calling me immigrant, immigrant. I, I don't like them to call me. I just like them to call me my name and my real name is Fredun. So I'd like them to call me Fredun. I just want them to be my friends. People call us illegal. It's hard for us to be illegal. Everyone wants to be legal and have their own rights, choose how to live. I become in Indonesia in December. Yes, December 20, uh, 2014. Yeah. So after July 2014, so it means that Australia won't resettle you. Yes, and um, we want to just come out of this kind of situation. I don't think there should be a rule like before July and after July. And I don't have any schools in here. There are many other children who are not going to school, who are not studying, who are just staying in their, in their room. They just eat, sleep, nothing much. I can communicate with my family, I mean relatives, they are living in Afghanistan. I don't know where are they now, they are alive or not. That has so much pain for me because I really loved my... I really want to see how are they, how are they feeling now, how are they are alive or not. Families, especially children who are um, suffering uh, from depression, anxiety. Our countrymen have suicide themselves because of... Uh, they were so worried and they didn't know what to do, so they, they just suicide themselves. And it's really hard for us to watch them like this. I have spent all my childhood in here. I can't... I don't really know how I have changed. Like, I can't imagine how I have changed. Refugee is a normal word for me right now because from the day that I was born, they called me an Afghan refugee. But it's okay, it doesn't matter. What matters is this, that I should think about my future. It will be very difficult to start to educate them after another five years or another 10 years. So we need to solve the problem now because the more we postpone solving the problem, the more it will be complicated in the future. We don't want to lose these generations because we know if we lose this generation, what will happen in our future? That's very, it's very dangerous. Indonesia has ratified the Convention of the Right of Children, so refugee kids should be allowed to attend school in Indonesia. But in practice, it rarely happens. It's usually like that, schools don't accept them or even if they do these kids can't really keep up with the studying they don't understand the language and they have trouble with it so usually they drop out 
And this is why refugees have set up their own learning centers, and there are about 11 of them in and outside of Jakarta. It's kind of amazing that they were able to set these centers up when refugees have so few rights in Indonesia. Well, yeah, it's a huge achievement. The first refugee learning center was set up in Cisarua. That's this hillside area about 100 kilometers outside Jakarta. And that area has become a center for refugees, especially the ones who don't have support from IOM. Several thousand mostly Hazaras live there. Sometimes when you're walking around, it feels more like the Middle East than Indonesia. I took you to visit the Hope Learning Centre. And when we were there, there were dozens of kids and teenagers in their sports clothes. They were either on the volleyball court or lingering around the sidelines checking each other out. The judge is there. Announcing their scores. The coach looks really intense, but the girls look really relaxed. Yeah. (laughs) He's taking it way too seriously. (laughs) The match was starting to heat up. Like, literally, it was so sweaty in the sun. So we snuck inside. My name is Abdullah Sarvari. I'm 20 years old and I'm from Afghanistan. I'm one of the founders of Refugee Learning Center, which was established in September 2015. Abdullah is this skinny, bookish guy who is really nerdy looking, but has the sweetest smile on his face all the time. He's really, really kind and sweet. I love him. He's so super sweet. Why am I just saying sweet all over and over again? Because I really love him. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only way to describe him. He really cares about the community. At the time, there were not many opportunities and chances for refugees to be involved in. Refugees were getting tired of waiting for someone to come and help them. So we finally decided to sit together and come up with a solution. And we just had meetings at a public park. In the end, we decided that uh, seeking education is a human right. It's not a crime and uh, nobody can give us a penalty for seeking education and for trying to provide education for our own siblings and children. They had a few refugees who could teach and manage a learning center. But unfortunately, I didn't have any skills or talents to contribute to this center. I was 15. You're a baby. (laughs) Compared to others, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because all of my other colleagues, they were above the age of 35, 40. So compared to them, oh yeah, I was very young. When it came to me, they couldn't come up with a duty or responsibility to, to assign to me. After the first two weeks, I decided to just come up with a, with a responsibility of my own, which was to just go class to class and inform the teachers that their period is over. Back then, we didn't have a lot of facilities and we didn't have like a ring or a bell. So it basically acted as the human <laughs> school bell. I was very inexperienced. I was very naive. I didn't have a lot to say. And there was a point where they didn't feel like I was very um, helpful at the learning center. Uh, slowly I was uh, selected as the communications officer and then in the end I was elected as the manager slash principal. Hello! Thank you. 
In 2015, for uh, most refugees, it was around two and a half years to three years from the, the, the day you arrive until the day you get resettled. Now we are hearing that it could be 10, 15 or even more for some refugees and some of them might never get resettled, which is terrifying news for most of the refugees. So just, we just wanted to, to give them a normal life as much as possible. So you've been listening to Refugee Radio on 3CR 855am or on 3cr.org.au. We've been listening to The Wait Podcast. We've been listening to Episode 4, Part 1. We'll listen to Part 2 next week. And just for some international updates, the refugee camp, which is in Bangladesh, which holds a crowded number of Rohingya refugees has had numerous fires in the last week, one specifically in the Cox Fazar, which has been horrible. You can keep up to date on that on your news feeds. You've been listening to Refugee Radio. So, here you are. Too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. Don't look too close.